You're listening to Love is the Message with Tim Lawrence and Jeremy Gilbert. Hello, this is Love is the Message. This is a podcast about music, counterculture and lots of other things. I'm Jeremy Gilbert and I'm here with my friend Tim Lawrence. Hello, hello. And today we're going to be talking about what was basically a house party uh, taking place in, in New York in 1970 that would turn out in retrospect to have been the beginning of a really important musical and social project which ended up going by the name of The Loft. So, Tim, who was it who was throwing this party and, and what was it? Uh, well, the party was thrown by David Mancuso. Uh, he thought himself very much as the host of the party because it's a party in his own home. That he, was wel- he was welcoming friends into his own home. Um, David had already started to throw uh, parties in his um, in downtown loft, which was located on 647 Broadway at the uh, NoHo end of downtown, north of Houston Street. And these parties had started off as kind of effectively trip parties that David would hold in the, around the mid to mid 1960s and for a few years, uh, where David would make tapes and people would, um, basically spend a fair amount of the party lying on their backs, kind of tripping and experiencing the music selections. David had then started, tried another party, uh, which was almost like an after hours party that didn't serve alcohol. Uh, which was called Coalition, which he had put on with a couple of friends. But he wasn't really happy with the kind of energy and the the vibe uh, that was happening at these events. And he was quite concerned that um, somehow the public side of the party wasn't working out, that the music working wasn't working out, and that the general ethos wasn't really working out. So um, in February 1970, uh, he decided to hold a Valentine's Day party and to um, effectively stage what would in some res- would arguably be the first party uh, in which uh, invitees would be encouraged to take acid uh, but instead of kind of spending the a fair amount of the evening uh, lying on their back they would be standing upright and they would dance um, so it's a dance party uh, it was held on Valentine's Day, um, which was kind of deliberate. David had come out of counterculture, as we've already discussed uh, to a certain extent in previous episodes. Um, and he was very much enamoured with the idea of, of um, social transformation. Uh, and in particular, through uh, taking acid, uh, th- through dance and through music. So uh, Valentine's Day was an opportunity to celebrate kind of universal love, if you like, rather than the more narrow and confined notion of love. And on the cards that David sent out, the invite cards for this party, which he might have sent out to maybe about 50 friends, um, he wrote the words, love saves the day. Uh, And love saves the day was this reference to the universal love, um, that um, could be could be kind of processed, channeled, experienced through Valentine's Day, an expansion of that idea of love, but also the love saves the day referenced uh, the fact that uh, LSD would be kind of consumed at the party, uh, and the party, in short, became 
what I would sort of argue is the first self-consciously utopian party kind of staged, at least in New York City, but maybe beyond. I mean, people have been dancing and partying through, you know, for, for millennia, obviously. Uh, but in this particular situation, David was very much focused on the party being a transformational experience that would be progressive, both uh, socially and sonically. Um, so rather than the dance ball being a space for kind of heterosexual courtship or for just kind of letting yourself go or for hedonism or for listening to really good music, it was about changing the world. So that was it, really. It was just, uh, you know, the, the, but so it was quite simple. Um, and yet there was a combination of other elements that sort of came together that turned this into a really um, important event. Uh, first, David was living downtown and this was still a rarity. Um, so there was a sense of it being a kind of forbidden territory, a deserted territory um, of, of a kind of, of a group of people mainly musicians and, and artists pioneering a kind of a new form of loft style living in a, in a kind of abandoned area of New York. There was the fact that it was going to be a rent party or an invite only party. So it was going to be intimate. Uh, it was going to be a party that was driven by a dance party that was being driven by LSD. Um, so that kind of informed the whole kind of event. David had also already um, started to invest in high-quality audiophile equipment. Uh, he'd already, by this point, had already purchased four pairs of Clipshons. So there was a kind of a different level of sound experience was going to be happening at this party. Um, and um, David also then uh, chose to select the music himself. And maybe this is kind of one of the most important elements, because rather than follow what had been the established model at this point, practiced by DJs who saw themselves as wanting to manipulate uh, the dance floor, usually in order to earn their money, which involved them uh, encouraging uh, dancers to go and drink at the bar. Um, the role of the DJ was to make sure this happened on a regular basis. So they would do this by playing four or five or six records, building to what they would call a, a quick crescendo, and then putting on a slow record to kind of kill the energy and make the, make the dancers go to the bar. Uh, David wasn't serving alcohol. He was interested in, in transformational journeying. Um, and so he selected music according to the energy on the dance floor. And this established, this was one, this, this arguably is one of the kind of original moments of what we would think of as contemporary DJ culture. It's democratic. The people who are on the floor have some kind of say on what, where the music is, is heading. And the fact that everyone in this room effectively was on acid meant that they entered into this kind of third dimension in which David would say there is, there was neither the DJ nor the dancer, but what he called a third ear that was kind of hovering within the room and kind of somehow captured a kind of this conversational energy that was emerging. Okay, so there's a whole load of things sort of coming together there, aren't there? There's an awful lot. So David had grown up in Utica in upstate New York. He came to the city in 62. So he'd been in, living in New, in New York through the 60s and had done things like hang around with Timothy Leary and his people at Millbrook, which is out, out in the countryside. But he'd been really influenced by his kind of attendance at sort of rent parties. So can you, over the course of the 60s, and in a way, this party was a rent party. So can you say a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the rent party is absolutely central to the whole understanding of the loft, as is this whole idea of the difference between a private party 
and um, and going out to a public venue, a discotheque, or what we might now call a club. The rent party scene or the rent party phenomenon that was so important to David goes back to the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s and um, situations in which tenants, uh, usually African-American, uh, would be struggling to pay uh, the rent being charged by a usually absentee landlord and so would start to put on parties in their homes in order to try and pay the rent. Uh, there'd be a, maybe a bit of food, there'd be a little turntable in the corner uh, where the host would put on some music, and the guests would be encouraged to make a donation at the door, which would then go to paying the rent. Um, it was extremely down-to-earth. Um, it was a, a really nice form of socialising and it was it was resolutely non-commercial and it existed outside of uh, New York City's licensing regulations because it was simply the equivalent of putting on a, a birthday party. When David came to uh, arrived in New York in 1962 the discotheque phenomenon was just beginning to build a bit of momentum it's kind of the, the first New York discotheque club had opened in the, at the very beginning of the 1960s but David didn't really like di- discotheque They were very prohibitive places in all sorts of ways back then. To get in, you had to be part of a heterosexual couple. The dancing inside took the form of the twist. Uh, As already mentioned, the the music would happen in fits and starts, really, building to this building to these kind of uh, mini peaks before the DJ would kill the floor in order to work the bar. And they were also licensed, so they, they, they had to follow New York's cabaret licensing laws. So they closed, I, I believe it was at 3.30 in the morning. Uh, this was one of the conditions of their opening. Uh, and they were also heavily regulated by the state, uh, which was another thing that David was uncomfortable with. So David just didn't think these were, this was a very good social situation. He wanted to explore idea, new forms of living, uh, ideas of liberation and transformation. Uh, And he didn't really feel that that was politically possible in the discotheque. Also because these discotheques had transient crowds and David wanted to form friendships. He wanted to be part of communities. This is what he was looking for uh, in in New York City. So he found himself gravitating to a rent party scene that was still um, happening in New York City. A lot of it was still based up in Harlem, but it was dotted around different parts of the city. Um, And it was here that David felt that you could really sort of form intimate friendships. You could dance to better music and you could party for as long as you want to. The party idea is a revolutionary idea. The non-party idea is a bourgeois idea. David was absolutely adamant that you know what he was effectively uh, doing was was um, hosting a rent party. He really didn't want to have to deal with uh, New York City. Um, and you know his his line to me when I was um, interviewing interviewing about this was to say that you just you just he just didn't want to get involved with the cabaret licensing authorities. They would just kind of hound you and hound you and check you and check you uh, until all life is kind of sucked out of out of whatever it is you wanted to do. I mean, maybe you can reflect on this, Jeremy, because I sometimes wonder. Like David was very suspicious of the state, and this was obviously a period during the Vietnam War. The state was to a certain extent seen as a now we look at the state uh, and we have a sometimes we think of the state as being the thing that can kind of defend us let's say against the private market neoliberalism corporations um i just so i I wondered if you might even reflect on kind of this this idea you know what david made of the state because it's something we sometimes think of as being about collectivity but david was was wanted distance well yeah but it is really 
it is really interesting because this is a historical moment when to some extent, I mean, how we think about the state is changing in all different directions. So the early 70s is really the, it's pretty much the high point of the growth of the welfare state and the sort of regulatory state and the sense of the state as being an institution. In At least if we're talking about America and uh, American states like New York or, and also the United Kingdom. We tend now, from the perspective of 2020, as you say, because we've suffered now 40 decades of attacks from the political right on the welfare state and even on the regulatory state that just might protect us from companies that want to exploit us as consumers and workers, then it's easy to forget that there were there was also quite a repressive dimension to that mid-20th century and also the kind of forms of capitalism which were prevalent at the time. So... You know, today it's easy to be nostalgic about the job for life in a factory for a white working class man. And the fact that those jobs for life have gone and not been replaced by anything better is a is a bad thing and is a defining factor of our experience of the past few decades. But at the same time, that kind of post-war lifestyle of the kind of the job for life for a man, a life as a, as a housewife for a woman, uh, the real very repressive attitudes towards same-sex relationships, etc., you know, that was also part of, you know, what historians call the post-war settlement. The deal that was done, if you like, between organised workers and the state and employers after World War II in places like Britain and America, it was a sort of deal. And the deal was, OK, we're not going to have revolution like they've had in some other parts of the world. The working class, both as voters and citizens and as members of trade unions at the high point of their historic power, are going to accept basically that like America and Britain are, you know, on one side of the Cold War rather than another. They're going to accept like massive levels of military spending to maintain the Cold War against the Soviet Union internationally. Uh, And in return for that, they're going to get really high wages. They're going to get an expanded welfare state. They're going to get a, a rising standard of living over several decades. But also part of that settlement is actually, compared to, say, the 1920s, like very conservative attitudes towards gender and sexuality being normalised in the 50s. You know, the 50s is the golden age of the housewife. It's also a period of real frustration for lots of women. And so there's a pushback against all these things happening in the 60s and 70s. All those things are being pushed back against it by lots of different groups and in lots of different ways. I mean, I'd say if you think about the history of dance culture, it, it's always been a bit of a pro- an issue, actually. And, and, you know, it runs through rave culture in the 90s. It's even, you know, we, we've had some experience of this sort of organising our own parties that at a certain level, you know, we live in a society which basically, in a capitalist society, and what it wants people to be doing with property and with urban space is it wants them to be making money out of it. It's okay with having large crowds of people dancing together in rooms as long as they're buying tonnes of beer or doing loads of coke. It's not really interested in in giving space for people to come together and dance in the middle of cities if they're not doing those things. If you're not doing those things, then what the system wants is for that space to be turned into flats or space for businesses. And so there's always this sort of tension. On the other hand, you know, it's always an issue and it's an issue, yeah, it's a bit of an issue when you think about the history of David's relationships just like with his neighbours over the course of the 70s that ultimately, you know, politically what you want, you want to live in a world in which actually 
the state does take necessary steps to make sure that if, if people in a community, even in the middle of a city, even where property is expensive, want to come together and dance and express themselves in whatever way they feel like, then they're able to do that. They're facilitated to do that. So there's always a bit of a, there's always a sort of risk if you're just like resisting the state or resisting licensing or just trying to evade licensing regulations that you're avoiding the political task of actually changing the licensing regulations or changing the zoning laws or doing or sort of doing something about it. But I think that's an ambivalence that runs right through the history that we're concerned with. And often it depends, often, you know, people have to make decisions based on what's politically and socially feasible at a given moment. I mean, David himself, I mean, I knew, you know, I knew David Mancuso pretty well. David didn't have a problem engaging with municipal authorities when he thought they were doing something progressive. His specific reason for not wanting to engage with the municipal authorities in the early 70s in New York was precisely, as you said, because they were they were governed by a set of presumptions about what was acceptable social behaviour and what wasn't, which were really inherited from, I mean, they were partly inherited from the Jim Crow era, they were inherited from really much earlier in the 20th century, and they were repressive. And they were obsessed with the idea that, well, the only reason anybody would have a, a space where people come together socially would be to make money, and therefore regulating and taxing the, you know, the, the sale of alcohol in those spaces. Well, indeed. I mean, I think I guess one thing to throw in uh, here as well is that this is a trend. That one of the important things to understand, I think, is just how transitional this this moment is historically. The ambition had been of counterculture had been to to change the world, um, and by the end of 1969, um, there was some serious question marks being asked about counterculture's ability to do this. Um, there had been setbacks at, say, the Ultimate Festival. Uh, countercultural insiders had started to wonder about the future direction of the movement. There had been some elements of commercialization within it. The state had also been quite systematic in its kind of clamped down on, on the anti-war demonstrations and that this would carry on for a couple of years. So for someone like David, there had been this shift from kind of wanting to change the world to feeling that you couldn't straightforwardly change the world. You know, those dreams had kind of started to uh, falter. And so David, in a sense, went from this idea of wanting to change the world to wanting to change his front living room. And in a way, he found it, you know, there were, he, what he discovered is the immense possibility that came with wanting to create a, a controlled environment in which people could be free. Um, this was always the tension of the loft, that you have to do an awful lot of work setting up the space and conceiving of the space um, in order to maximise freedom. Well, it's, an ex it's a certain experience of freedom, isn't it? It's a certain sort of feeling of freedom. It's always debatable whether you can say that is freedom, because if, if, if once you get back onto the streets, you're not. Well, no, absolutely. No, absolutely. But you could say it's free. It's freedom within that space, that particular in that particular space for that particular duration of time. That was a definition of freedom. And it was once remarked to me by a very good friend of David's, a woman called Daphne who said to me, her, one of her observations was the, and I'm not quite I'm kind of meant to do the maths on this. Um, uh, she said, it's incredible to me that David was someone who over the course of his lifetime invited or had a million people come into his home and he never told them what to do. Yeah, but in in that anyway, in that in that particular space and time, kind of you know, there was this kind of idea that you change your own. You, if even if you manage to change your front room, that's something. 
I'm making this up as I go along a bit, but can we call this the politics of osmo- os- os- politics of osmosis? The you know you just you create something for the hundred people in that room, and you 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 feed them with something. You give birth to an idea, and well, then it's, those- what Deleuze, it's what Deleuze and Foucault would call a molecular politics. Yeah. I mean they precisely formulate those terms yeah, in yeah. order to de- to describe this kind of idea, the idea that by operating at the level of people's feelings and sensations you can help to catalyze and contribute to wider sort of social and, and political change but i think i think it's really important to sort of differentiate that from some other things that are going on at the same time that, off, that those ideas often get confused with mm. because there's a standard account of the history of the counterculture it comes from people like adam curtis which says they gave up trying to change the world and just tried to change themselves mm-hmm. And that's then blamed for the emergence of a kind of narcissistic, individualistic culture of neoliberalism. And that's, def- that's absolutely not like what David was about. That it was about change, it was about changing and intentionally producing social relations and kind of collective experience. It was, on, it, it, you know, it was trying to do it on a scale that was achievable, but it was, it was absolutely a kind of collective experience that he wanted to produce. And he wanted to produce an experience in which people's, you know, experience of themselves like was, it was experienced as, as social and collective. You know, the idea of freedom is really important. There's a sense in which David was definitely not the only person doing this, but what's going on with a lot of the most important musical experiments at this time for me is they are, they're sort of affective laboratories. You know, they're spaces in which you can go and you can sort of experimentally experience what it, what it feels like to be existing in, a, in, in an environment that's constituted by sort of democratic, egalitarian and productive sort of social relations. And the idea is partly, that, you know, if if you can experience that even momentarily, then hopefully you're going to you are yeah you're going to take that out into your wider life, into the wider society and culture, and you're going to strive to produce those sorts of feelings in other contexts. There's also a slightly different way of understanding the function of something like the loft, though. Also, especially in the early seventies, it's also that well, it is yeah, it is providing an experience which is sort of therapeutic for people. You know, it's providing experience in which people can sort of shelter from and protect themselves from and recover from the sort of alienating effects of living in, you know, advanced capitalist society. And then there's always a question as to whether, well, does that just become a form of escapism or does it not? Or or does it become something that contributes to, you know, in the long term, trying to challenge those sources of alienation? My sense has always been that David had a sense that, a lot of the people coming to the party, I think we've said this before, they were, they were in the rest of their lives, they were doing other stuff. They were doing productive stuff, you know, whether it was artists or teachers or, you know, or activists. That you don't understand the party as existing just in total isolation from other people's lives. That, like, if all anybody was doing was partying, this is sort of what happens with rave at the end of the 80s. This, you know, so a lot of people just want to spend their entire lives partying and not do anything else. Like, if you're doing that, then it, then it's not really producing anything. It's not producing those kind of wider effects. It's partly producing these effects by virtue of the fact that, well, it's not the only thing people are doing. It's not the only thing in their lives. It becomes an important sort of social hub for people, an important part of their lives. But, you know, they're all also doing other stuff. And like, even, you know, to this day, like most of the people, the people who organise the parties, are all, they, they usually have other things going on. We're making this podcast because we believe that alternative history and radical ideas should be given as much airtime as possible 
Yet it's increasingly difficult for knowledge of this kind to circulate through the mainstream media or the university sector. We love doing it and we're committed to making sure it's available for free to anyone who wants it. But at the end of the day, for us and our producer, Matt, this is what we do for our jobs. This kind of work isn't just a hobby and we've each permanently lost a significant chunk of our regular income due to the pandemic. We won't be able to carry on doing this without some financial support. So if you have the means and you like what we're doing, please consider supporting us via our Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes. Thanks. There's one big party going on all the time. Sometimes we get to tune into it. The rest of the time, there's love is the message. David was born on 20th of October 1944, but within, uh, I think it's 10 days um, of being born, he was taken to a children's home in Utica, uh, upstate New York. And there was this nun sister, Alicia, looked after him. And so David's kind of, you know, experience from the earliest age was to be living in a communal situation, a situation that was, you know, very familial, uh, very loving. But the family here was the model of not a nuclear family, but an extended family. And also a family that would be continually experiencing change um, as kids would come in and come out depending on their own circumstances so there was this sense of David growing up in this extended family that was continually in a sense of transformation and was also full of people who didn't have too much going for them I mean these were kid young young children who basically couldn't be looked after and so it kind of gone into the hands of you know this this kind of children's home run by a nun the parties were, in a sense, an attempt to uh, recreate and develop this experience in the children's home, in part because Sister Alicia, uh, in order to keep the kids happy, would put on regular parties and would you know, even go out and buy records at a local record store. Apparently it was very into James Brown. Um, so we have this incredible picture, really, of this kind of, you know, fully robed nun going into kind of a record store <laughs> buying black music and then sort of you know taking it back and be, being being kind of you know maybe the first nun to sort of do some DJing who knows but this was very inspirational for David uh, it was very important for him and what David found is that he had grown up as an itinerant a sort of a you know vagabond he was kind of he barely had a home and when David moved to moved to New York City and started to hang out there and going to these rent parties he found himself once again with this group of friends who came from assorted disadvantaged often marginalized backgrounds he was also really quite sociable and he was very inquisitive and he 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 um thirsted for new experience and so he kind of had this uh developed this kind of quite uh very varied and interesting network of friends um he was dating a guy called larry patterson so there was also kind of larry patterson's friends who were sort of would come to this first party and in a sense um sort of slowly getting to the point that um new york city has long uh, builds part of its reputation on it being a, a melting pot city, a city built on immigration, uh, people coming with nothing and striving to build a life for themselves out of nothing, a kind of entrepreneurial spirit. The thing is, at that particular historical juncture when David was putting on this first party in February 1970, um, the melting pot had not yet been realised. Um, even this kind of relatively late point in its mythology, uh, it was still illegal for two men to dance with each other on a dance floor. These were just 
some of the limitations that could still be experienced in, in New York City. Um, the integration between different social groups was still kind of, you know, notably limited in all sorts of, of ways. When I was interviewing David, I, there were points when I'd start trying to nail down, you know, the exact percentages of his crowd and how many were black gay and how many were white gay and how many were women and how many were men. And, and David, <laughs> I mean, that's being a bit kind of literal about these things. And, and David just would, you know, get, he was, he was pretty patient, but he could, he got a bit annoyed after a while. And he's like, he's like, look, no one was checking your identity at the door. This was the point. It wasn't even that David was trying to create a, a consciously mixed crowd where there would be different people from all walks of life and that this would be the kind of way the mix would have to happen if it was to reach perfection. It was, again, it was this, fit, this thing about not interfering. So it was a very, it was a very open space. It was a very, it was a very freeing space. Um, and I just thought this is a good way for us to introduce this record, which became iconic for David uh in in 1970 in the first year he was putting on these parties uh which is booker t's melting pots um and it's just you know it was you know it's actually an instrumental but there was something about the kind of spirit of the instrumentation but obviously also the title that meant that david really kind of thought that this was kind of a spiritual record that had kind of particular meaning for the loft We've got all these different elements coming together in this first party. This, this, we've got David's experience of collectivised childcare, which, remember, was something associated with very radical movements like the socialist kibbutzim movement in Israel. It's associated with the, the commune movement of the 60s and 70s. And David had sort of accidentally experienced it, but it's also it's a key element. We've got the rent parties, this element of African-American culture, which incidentally, it's worth reflecting, uh, there was, there's a precise British equivalent to the Rent Party from the 60s onwards, which is what was called the Blues Party. That was the name for, you know, house parties organised by people, mostly Afro-Caribbean people playing reggae, where you would ask for a small contribution and organise it for exactly the same reasons and exactly the same ways as the American Rent Parties. And, and similarly, they were, con- they were contexts in which the idea of the DJ or the selector as, as a sort of artist and a sort of engaged in a very particular kind of musical craft were really, was really, that idea was cultivated. So you've got that going into the loft. You've also got, though, as we've alluded to, you've also got the psychedelic culture of the 60s. So David had spent time at Millbrook, which is this big country house owned by a millionaire guy called Robin Hitchcock, where Timothy Leary and his sort of acolytes would basically hold LSD sessions all weekend for mostly for kind of wealthy socialites, but, but some sort of artists and academics and whoever would go. And, and David would go because he was uh, high school friends with Nick, uh, Nick Sand, who was one of the most famous LSD chemists. And also at the same time in the, the late 60s, you've got developing... I mean, one thing I often like to think about in relation to the loft, I don't, I don't think we've talked about it on the show so far, but one thing I always like to think about is that 
One of the things happening over the course of the 60s is there are various ideas about what you do with LSD. I mean, nobody really knows what to do with LSD. LSD has been this remarkable technology that's been around since the 40s in some form. And the thing with LSD is basically you take LSD under relatively controlled circumstances. Some people will have a terrible time. We're not recommending anyone do it. But um, all other things being equal, all the scientific evidence is lots of people will have a very good time and they'll have something resembling a sort of classical, mystical or spiritual experience. Not everybody will, but it's quite easy to reproduce. And that's, that was the first thing people noticed about it. But nobody really knows what to do with it beyond that. Nobody really knows what to do. As you said earlier, in the early 60s, there's this idea, in the 50s and early 60s, there's this idea, well, if we can get amongst intellectuals like Aldous Huxley and the, the young Timothy Leary, if you can get, if you get like Khrushchev and Kennedy to take acid, then the Cold War will be over. Now, that doesn't work out at all. I mean, it turns out that people in the CIA are taking LSD, like exec military people are taking LSD, corporate executives are taking LSD. It, it's not making them cool, really, for the most part. It's giving, it's, it's arguably it's just making them better at doing the bad things they're doing. So this idea of, of LSD is more something you might want to take collectively, publicly, in order to facilitate some new kind of experience, which is a modern musical experience a collective experience a shared experience a public experience is developing in, in various places and on the west coast you've got the development of the psychedelic happenings and the idea of the happenings is itself actually it doesn't it's coming out of concept emerging strands of conceptual art for example the idea of performance art and things like this and you've got people like ken kesey and the merry pranksters who are like driving around America in their psychedelic bus, getting high on acid and like playing, you know, using kind of sound effects to create weird hallucinatory experiences while they're doing that. You've got the Grateful Dead, who, who are the sort of house band of the pranksters and they're developing their own musical practice of these big concerts with like heavily improvised sort of jam sessions. And there's always, there's a bit of a tension a lot of the time in all those things between, well, do you want this collective LSD experience? Do you want it to be basically very calm, like the Millbrook, Timothy Leary ideal is you have like three or four people listening, sitting on the floor, listening to very calm music, you know, not getting overexcited, having a profound spiritual experience. Or do you want it to be like a wild, crazy party, like lots of weird sound effects and freaky film shows and people really getting out of their heads, which becomes the sort of West Coast ideal. Whereas what, one of the things that's going on with this formula David's going kind to of developing is, it, is it's trying to bring together like the most interesting elements of both or the most productive elements of both. So it's trying to bring like the energy and the collectivity of the dance floor, of the acid rock concert, of the happening. But it's also trying to infuse that with something of the sort of sense of calmness, the sense of safety, the sense of sort of non-threateningness, which... Is, is central to the sort of East Coast idea of how, you know, what it means to take LSD in a group. And then all of that is being partly made possible because the music David is drawing on, it isn't just this you know, often very jag, often, to be honest, you know, quite difficult, you know, quite sort of aggressive sounding sort of rock music. It's, he's drawing on soul and funk and jazz, a lot of which has much kind of easier tonalities for people to engage with. And then the very, very specific element of, of the formula, which is kind of sort of unique to David, it's, it's adapted from the way in which the rock bands and their sound people and their producers, people like Owsley and the great, of the Grateful Dead scene, are 
really trying to develop very high quality PA systems and very high quality amplification. But it's something quite sort of different. Again, it's his use of this high end audio. And it's something it's really difficult to convey to listeners or to convey to people who haven't experienced like what this means. So when you talk about high end audio, you're basically talking about equipment which has been designed basically for rich people to put in their bachelor pads or whatever you know it's designed for sort of sort of jazz fans to rich jazz fans to listen to lps at home on it's equipment that's not really designed for being moved around it's not designed to have the kind of the kind of sonic power of industrial public address equipment like you would normally use in a club like then and to this day and it produces this very unique sort of aesthetic this very unique sort of sonic experience whereby you know, you're playing records, you're playing amplified music, but the sonic experience for the listener has a, a, a kind of delicacy about it, a kind of non-threateningness about it, which most people, most people's experience of, of electronic, electronically amplified music in 2020 or in 1970 is that it's quite dirty, it's quite noisy, your physical response to it is going to be slightly sort of tense, one of the things that David brings into this mixture of combinations then is this idea that you're going to facilitate this experience, which is collective, which is energetic, which is, involves dancing, but also is not sort of invasive and scary, like kind of listening to a loud rock concert might be. As you, you're going to do it through this use of this very specialised equipment. I think now is a good time for us to listen to a bit more music. Um, so David would, was already holding um, parties that were more passive, we could say, in the second half of the 1960s. So he'd make these tapes for these parties. And there was a whole culture, um, a whole genre almost, or mixture of genres of music that, you know, would be heard at these parties. But mainly the idea was that they would be, you would listen to music that would transport you and take you on a on a journey. Uh, the music wasn't really about what we could call the presence that would come through funk it wasn't about the real time and space so much as kind of being able to kind of you know move off into another dimension and you know often within this experience understand yourself as being kind of indeed this mere speck uh, within the universe and and through this as well to maybe be able to begin to divest oneself of one's ego um, so there would be a lot of, you know, Ravi Shankar was kind of becoming quite big at this particular point, of course. He was one of the, f the first classical Indian musicians to become a kind of key figure in the West. He played at Woodstock. Well, Ravi Shankar is what would have been on the turntable all the time at Millbrook as well. Absolutely. So no, I'm saying this is indeed how the, you know, people, if people were listening to kind of acid music, you know, if it wasn't going to be kind of acid rock and, and the Grateful Dead, then this is the kind of, this is the music that would, that they would listen to. Because David was holding his parties in his home and not in a discotheque, and because he had um, already started to develop a very finely tuned system that was aimed at uh, accurately reproducing the sound of, of, of a recording as it had been originally recorded. Um, so there was an accuracy and also a sense of transparency. Uh, or what David would probably just call simple musicality. Um, there was this, there was this, there was a way in which the music could be ex experienced with a particular kind of sense of detail and immersion that you would enter into a relationship um, with the music and, and, and go on, on this journey. And because David was playing in his home, 
um, it meant that uh, in contrast to many concert situations and certainly in contrast to a, with a discotheque situation, you had a situation where you people could relax as well as if they wanted to kind of move about energetically. So already that very situation kind of provided a, a situation where you could create a journey with the music in a way that was very hard to do in a, in a discotheque. So Alice Coltrane's uh, journey into Satchitananda uh, is an example of that. Satchitananda. Yeah, I knew I was going to mispronounce that. <laughs> This was released in 1970. John Coltrane had died of liver cancer in 1967, um, and I think it was after that that uh, Alice Coltrane met uh, met this 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 man Swami Satchidananda, uh, who became a who became a spiritual teacher. So with we're playing harp. This was a track a record that um, Alice Coltrane recorded in 1970. And uh, it's one that David absolutely loved. Uh, and it was, although I think there's some question mark about the exact moment when he was starting to really develop these kind of long introductions to his parties, uh, what he would call a prelude. This was definitely a record that was, you know, one of David's favourites and was regularly on, on the turntable uh, at 647 Broadway. Music, dance, sound systems, counterculture... This is Love is the Message. So, you know, David was, it was very important for David that the party would peak, um, that it was about joy. It was about a celebration of love. Um, and so, you know, vocals were very, always very important to him. And um, David just, there was this record released, a gospel record released by Dorothy Morrison um, called Rain, again in 1970, that became a favourite of David's when um, David um, worked with Colleen Murphy and David Hill and Euphonic to release the first uh, Loft Classics compilation. Uh, I think the Dorothy Morrison was either on that or maybe it was the second Loft compilation, but uh, perhaps it was the second one, but it's certainly on, on those compilations. So it was a real, a real Loft classic. And I think it's also, there's something, David kind of quite liked aspects of gospel music. I mean, it was, it was music rooted in community, in celebration. There was a religious side to David, even though he wasn't into or organized religion per se. One of the most influential people in his life was this nun, Sister Alicia. He was open to different spiritual inputs. And that could be, you know, whether that was going to be through kind of, you know, forms of Eastern spiritualism and religion uh, that could also find its, you know, music that they would play at Loft. He was also open to Christian inputs as well. Uh, I mean, it was within the black church that call and response, you know, found one of its most important roots. So Drain is one of these records that kind of captures the, captures the joy and also the spirituality of the Loft.
So um, City Country City by War was a, was a big record for David. It's uh, a kind of, you know, a Latin kind of rock group. David had, in, the, in 1969, bought a house uh, in Woodstock in upstate New York. And part of his, uh, as soon as the parties became uh, regular, um, uh, the 647 Broadway, he developed this routine very early on in which he would go, um, uh, he would, on I think on the probably on the Monday, uh, would go upstate and he would spend a couple of days up there uh, before then returning to New York City and beginning a series of quite rigorous uh, steps to prepare for the party, whether it was kind of ordering balloons or getting in food or testing the sound system and so on and so forth. So David's life was was, living, was moving between uh, the countryside in Woodstock and the city uh, in New York City. And he loved both. Uh, he adored going up to Woodstock. He loved nature, you know, being part of the environment. But he also was a, you know, a creature of the city. He loved kind of the, the exciting social possibilities that came with that. The loft was very much a kind of urban produced uh, urban party. It brought all these elements together that you could only find in and sit in, in indeed, arguably even in just in New York City. So New York, there's also this record just kind of was a kind of... Um, symbolic for David in that it kind of reflected his life but he also loved the the kind of energy he loved this kind of the shifting energy which would go from being very very quiet and still and gentle to being kind of something which is kind of very celebratory and energetic and kind of you know expressive incredibly dynamic uh, in a way this was like how David saw the entirety of the party it would begin very quick very quietly and it would end in this kind of explosion of kind of energy and the other thing is that David loved long records as did as as did his dancers the 12 inch single didn't exist at the time David knew and everyone knew that if you had a long record playing then you could really lose yourself in that record much more easily than you could in a seven inch single which would generally last about three and a half minutes um, so City Country City was one of these album cuts that David took to playing and was one of the again was a real pioneer when it came to sort of recognising the importance of playing these kind of long records and City Country City is uh, is one of the longest and it became an absolute absolutely you know classic uh, loft record There's one big party going on all the time. Sometimes we get to tune into it. The rest of the time, there's love is the message. In terms of sound, David was was on a journey, and um, as with so much of his life, and he was looking for something. And he thought that he, or he realised that he had found something when he was upstate one day in the late 1960s, and he was tripping and he was by a stream and he put he he saw a whirlpool uh in this little stream and he put his ear to this whirlpool and within it he said he experienced the infinite precise detail of the universe and it was revelatory to him the precision of this sound had a lasting impression on him and he started to wonder what would happen if you try to recreate sound 
to this kind of level within um, a dance party environment. He was already familiar with, and many other people were, with the idea of of live music and live music happening uh, in a good acoustic room. But people hadn't thought through this idea in terms of an actual PA system or a home stereo system that would be kind of set up in public. And so this became part of David's mission. Was um, And it was a mission because he felt that music could give you life energy. Uh, there was a book that was published uh, in the very early 1980s uh, by a guy called John Diamond that was influential on David uh, later on, or at least he said uh, expressed some of the ideas that he had already been mulling over. And the book was called The Life Energy of Music. And this was part of David's kind of overall kind of if we want to call it philosophical framework, it was that the idea was these parties would be a place where the world was transformed and then through kind of this sort of ripple effect would then kind of help change the world outside of the party space as well. So the idea was that, you know, the the more powerful one could feel the music within this party setting, the more one would experience this kind of life and this transformational life energy. And the more this would feed into a party that would become more and more intense. That the community and all the intensity means is that the way people express themselves physically and the way they express themselves socially with each other becomes more relaxed, more open, more dynamic, more engaging, more creative. Uh, and that's what a good party is. And so the sound system became this mission for David. And we will both remember, and I'm sure we're going to come back to this, David's absolutely obsessive, relentless drive to improve, not only build what he thought would be kind of the best possible sound system, but then to kind of recalibrate it and think about improving it every single party that he played. And the same was going on in, in New York City. Um, and the clip, Sean, became this kind of iconic centerpiece, at least at the beginning um, of the sound system. Um, he bought his first uh, player of Clipshorns from a friend called um, Jimmy. And when David had decided he was going to put on, uh, start putting on dance parties, he bought a second set of Clipshorns so that he was basically would have four of them in, in a room. And the, the Clipshorns is this kind of, is, is this kind of, you know, I, iconic speaker that was developed, I think, first of all, uh, in 1948 by Klipsch. And it was seen by David to be very effective in terms of its kind of, both its warmth and its reproduction, its kind of the reproduction of sound, its sonic accuracy. You've you've had plenty of experience, indeed, kind of, uh, first of all, trying to work alongside David, even buying the Clipshorns for the London party when we ended up doing that in 2005, Jeremy. So maybe you'd like to also say something about the kind of why these speakers uh, became so special to David. Yeah, well, the Clipshorns are, they are a sort of icon of American audiophile culture, an iconic product. And so they're they're these big sort of triangular shaped speakers that are designed to fit into the corner of a room. The clipped horn is literally the clipped horn. They've got a a massive kind of coiled horn inside as the main speaker. And so they're designed to use the room as part of the amplification. The corner of the room effectively becomes a cabinet. And the consequence of all this is that you can put a very low signal, a very low powered signal into them and get a very loud noise. So rather than using very high levels of amplification, which is the normal way in which you get a really loud noise to fill a room you actually you use the actual structure of the room and the structure of the speakers and the sensitivity of the speakers 
and you can have a very low input and that very low input means there's very low noise in the signal so and it means that the whole effect of listening to them is really sort of striking and distinctive so one of the things that people often comment on comment on if you're listening to a sound system that's built around clip shorts is that the music can seem to be very loud but you can still hear people talk you can have a conversation and yeah david used to say he used to say good sound good party i mean he used to say to me that the, you know in some sense the sound quality was more important than the musical content or was was as important and I mean, there really is, you know, there, there is something to that. This is the aspect of the whole project that often, like, sounds really geeky and sounds like it's just going to, people are just going to go to sleep and people are not, it's the thing that people can't, often struggle to see why it's important. But actually, you know, the sense of kind of audiophile technology as being this real sort of art or this sort of semi-magical craft is something David had a real reverence for and something that does... It is really crucial in producing that sort of feeling at the party. It's also connected to that feeling of freedom. And I think I said this already, and I'll, you know, I'm sure I'll end up saying it loads of times. But, you know, David always said, and then my own experience, like using the same equipment is completely true, that people will enjoy a, a much wider range of music if, if they're hearing it on a really nice sound system. And there's a kind of freedom in people's relationship to the music and a freedom in what the DJ or the, the musical host or selector can play. I mean, I would say, you know, there's a there's a kind of philosophical position which is sort of encapsulated by that story about David listening to the musical stream, which is that there's a sort of materialist mysticism going on here. That's something that's coming through bits of psychedelic culture. It's coming through the interest of people like David in, in things like yoga. There's this idea that you can access a sort of spiritual dimension of experience, but through these completely material means, like the physical postures of yoga, the physical act of ingesting a drug, the sounds of the music. And so the physical material qualities of like the speakers and the records and the record player and the room, like they all take on this really concrete you know role in in producing this experience and there's something very powerful about that i think Yeah, well, Black Skin Blue Eyed Boys uh, was released in 1970 as uh, the by the Equals, uh, which was the group of Eddie Grant, a uh, Guyanese uh, British musician. And one of the interesting things about the Equals is that it was a uh, it was a UK band uh, and it was ethnically mixed, uh, which wasn't particularly kind of regular at the time. Uh, it sort of sounded like a hymn to diversity. Um, I think the lyrics run. Uh, people white is white what's black ain't clover together will be when the war is over and so it's the kind of this idea of you know this first of all this black skinned blue eyed boy is someone who is is not supposed to kind of exist as a kind of human being really this you know the the person with black skin and and, and blue eyes so it's this composite human uh, i think where people are seen for you know being connected by their humanity rather than kind of individual traits. Um, and this, this also, it's about a kind of, you know, a, a, another kind of melting pot 
a song about race, effectively. But it's also an anti-war song. And David always insisted that there was a, a strong connection between wanting to change the world, the street protest that became identified with part of the countercultural movement and the party. As far as David was concerned, there's always a kind of going backwards and forwards between the street and the party, between wanting to kind of, you know put on a fantastic transformative social experience in the loft and then going outside and wanting to kind of feed that energy into the world and fighting for for, for social justice and fighting to, to also stop the war. So another really important record, which wouldn't have been played till a couple of years after that first party, but is associated in many people's minds with the early history of the loft party, is Manu Dibango's Soul Makosa. So Soul Makosa is was one of the first sort of African records to become really popular on the New York dance floors, and it was David that was credited with popularising it. And so it's part of this extraordinary wave of music that's going to include people like Fela Kuti. It's going to involve an extraordinary wave of, of experimentals of dance music coming from Africa, which we're still only just in the past few years sort of realising how, how rich it was because so much of it got forgotten and went out of print. I mean, this record, it has this kind of rhythmic quality, this tribal quality, which David loved, which is very much part of the aesthetic. But also, to me, there is a really interesting resonance with, say, the Alice Coltrane, because one of the things that's going on for me in the early 70s and that David's musical aesthetic and the Loft musical aesthetic exemplifies is the emergence of what I call Afro-psychedelia, this interchange and exchange between sort of psychedelic music, psychedelic ideas psychedelic musical experiments and Afro-American, and not just Afro-American, but Afro-diasporic culture, including sort of dub in Jamaica, including experiments coming out of Britain and including stuff actually happening in Africa. And uh, for me, I think it's, I'm sure this is something we'll develop over the series, but I mean, one of the things that's really, really important about The Loft is The Loft does really mark this, if you want to see the point at which all of the elements of this Afro-psychedelic aesthetic sort of converge, it's the playlist of The Loft, really. Enjoying the show? If you can, please consider supporting what we do via our Patreon so we can stay free. You can find the link in the show notes. Thanks, and back to the show. There was the Loft and then there was this other party that was very influential, running in direct parallel to the Loft called the Sanctuary, which kind of opened its door. It was a failing discotheque that opened its doors to a very mixed, including uh, gay clientele, almost to the week when David held his Valentine's Day party. There's no way of telling exactly what week this happened at the Sanctuary, but it was in very early 1970. These were the two models. The Sanctuary was this public discotheque model. Uh, where there was no invite list, uh, had to supposedly, you know, closed at 3.30 or 4 in the morning until it just kind of decided to hell with that and still turned itself into an after-hours party, but then was closed soon after. So the sanctuary ran in, par in parallel to the loft and was 
very influential in terms of turn of ex exploring how a public discotheque could also be inclusive, um, dynamic, sensational, you know, otherworldly, uh, transformative. Um, but it was less intimate, obviously, than the loft. And also it didn't have anything like the longevity of the loft. Within a year and a half, more or less, the sanctuary had closed. Um, and so it's the loft which, and this was always very central to David's idea, is he wanted, he wanted longevity, he wanted security, he wanted stability. So his idea was always for the loft to be, um, well, as soon as it got going, was for, to see how the loft's uh, long-term future could be, could be kind of um, secured. And this is one of, one of many reasons, but it's a necessary reason why it became so influential, because it didn't follow this regular pattern of, of nightlife up until that moment, really, and in many respects, nightlife since that moment which is for transience, for things to pop up and close down, have a brief, brief moment of magnificence and then to kind of be co-opted or just become boring or whatever might be the case. The loft was so... So the loft became this, and it was also because of the opening hours of the loft, as I've kind of already mentioned, meant that all of these people were coming to the loft and they were staying there or they were coming there from other parties. One way of explaining this, even when Francis Grasso, the DJ at the Sanctuary, who'd gone through this, you know, who had seen the Sanctuary become the hottest public discotheque in town by miles, and, and Francis Grasso was worshipped as a god and the first DJ to actually try and mix two records together. And when Francis was taken to the loft, uh, because people, you know, uh, he, you know, his assistant DJs, his alternate DJs, had also started to go to the loft and wanted to show him, Francis was like, oh, you know, this is the first time in my life when I think I've seen, you know, this is a party that is, is going is going further than the parties I'm going to. And this guy, David Mancuso, is taking music further than I'm taking it. So there was this, it just became this general agreement that you went to the loft, you entered into this incredibly advanced, nuanced, sophisticated, beautifully calibrated, welcoming uh, space that, that no one else was kind of close to really, but everyone else wanted to experience and then in some respects reproduce, give their own spin on. And so this is this is how, and, and David was, and we'll come on to talk about this, I'm sure in, in, a, in a subsequent episode, is the way the loft inspired all of these other parties to open up, sometimes trying to create a direct template, trying to, or sometimes trying to recreate the loft, but give it a specific twist. Or sometimes as was the case with Studio 54, because, you know, the main designer at Studio 54, Carmen D'Alessio, happened to be a regular at the loft, was then employed to kind of play a key design role um, at, at when studio was opening, wanted to kind of sell, salvage some of the things or in, introduce some of the, the great things that were going on at the loft in Studio 54. It didn't work, but we'll also come on to explore this more. Well, I think it's also worth reflecting that the one reason for that longevity and that perfection of the formula is precisely, as we've been setting out in this episode, that it doesn't just come from nowhere, that it's actually the convergence and synthesis of these elements that have been developing for quite a long time, like in some cases going back to the 20s, in other elements going back into the early 60s. And it, it's not just a sort of pristine moment of origin for modern dance culture. It's also the point at which a whole bunch of 
experiments, yeah, from the from the sixties and earlier, are, are brought together in a way which it, in in an experiment which it, experiment which itself turns out to be incredibly successful. You're absolutely right. We look at we look at what David surrounded himself. We look at the kind of the Clipshorn speaker. This was already a kind of a really solid, well established kind of you know piece of equipment. We look at the rent party. This was embedded in a New York City's social history. Uh, we look at the kind of the infrastructure of the warehouse. This is like in a way the perfect you know in terms of acute the mix of material acoustics comfort space and yet a sense of intimacy this was you know these buildings have been around for you know usually more than 100 years so david was building or you know drawing on existing practices the unique thing he did is bring them together in the way that he did uh, because there wasn't any party like the loft before the loft yeah everything was there to be assembled by the right person who came along and understood that Tune in, turn on, get down. Love is the message.